The most dangerous place you can be as a trial lawyer is to think you've got it figured out. I'm still trying to get better. I still have the passion for it. I believe in it. Everyone can learn to do what I do. And yet there's a group here that continues to get extraordinary verdicts. Trial Lawyers University is revolutionizing educating lawyers to be better trial lawyers. It's been invaluable to me. Trial Lawyers University, where the titans come to train. Produced and powered by Law Pods. We're here with Dino Colombo today from the great state of West Virginia. And uh, Dino, I know you, you've been practicing a while. How long have you been practicing now? 35 years now, Dan, a long time. Yeah, you got a lot of gray hair to show for it. I sure see do. It on the Zoom, yeah. comment on that. So, you know, how did you decide to become a lawyer and slash a trial lawyer? Yeah, well, that's a good question. The truth of the matter is I, was a, I went to undergraduate school at West Virginia University here in Morgantown, which is where I live. And um, I was in business school like a lot of other people are. I had a business law class, a guy, an older gentleman by the name of, of George Marcusic. And I, I speak of George very fondly. He was an adjunct professor, an older gentleman. But this guy was full of life, man. I'm telling you, he told you the way it is. It made perfect sense to me. It just hit me like I understood what this guy was saying. And, you know, my dad wasn't a lawyer. Uh, I have a cousin who's a lawyer, but, but law really wasn't in my family. But George Marcuse, he's, he's deceased now, unfortunately, but he's the one that just put the energy in me to be a lawyer. I understood what he was saying. It made sense. I'm kind of a black and white kind of guy. Truthfully, it's right or it's wrong. I, I understand there's shades of gray, but I'm, I'm a direct kind of guy up front. And George just hit me right with that and, and turned me on to law. And, and I became a trial lawyer because, frankly, I, I worked for the prosecuting attorney's office in Columbus, Ohio. Went to law school in Capital University in Columbus. Met my wife. She's an Ohio State grad. But I worked for the prosecuting attorney's office while I was still in school. You see, in, in Columbus, Ohio, we, you were able to have, as a third-year law student, a special license. So I tried probably 200 bench trials while I was still in law school. These were juvenile delinquent cases to a bench. Those trials would last two hours, half a day, sometimes a whole day. But it was just me. And man, you made all kinds of mistakes and you did all kinds of crazy things and screwed things up. And, and sometimes you did the right thing and you would win those cases. But I'm a guy who, who doesn't mind standing up in front of people. I know that that's sometimes scary for people, but I don't mind public speaking. And it just is what I feel like I was meant to do. It's my passion, frankly. Well, it's good when we're doing our passions because it makes uh, this thing called work a lot more fun. Well, you're not kidding. And it makes us a lot better at it too. You know what I mean? Like when it's a calling instead of a job. Yeah. I mean, George, Mark, like I said, Mark Kuzik was my business law teacher. I wouldn't want to do business law. It was a lot of contracts, a lot of, you know, that kind of thing. That's not what I wanted to do, but, but he really connected with me. And that's frankly why I'm a lawyer today. Well, you know, the reality is we all need um, people in our lives to, to be that great influence. And that was kind of like the, impetus behind when I started trial lawyers university during the pandemic was I need to learn. I want to be a great trial lawyer, sure. you know, a civil trial lawyer. I was a criminal defense lawyer. I tried a lot of cases, but it's a whole different game being a civil trial lawyer. And the way I'm going to learn how to do this stuff is if people will mentor me, well, nobody's going to pick up, take on some 45 year old guy from, you know, who just wants to like, who's not going to do any grinding, you know, discovery and all the other bullshit that people have to do as they yeah. learn the process. <laughs> that ain't ever to happen. So I had to find a way to Maneuver it so all these great travelers would teach me everything they knew. And uh, that kind of worked out. It worked out well for me yeah. and, you know, a lot of other folks. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, in, in law school, you do trial ad, you do, 
various advocacy classes. A lot of my my classmates were always worried about standing up in front of people. They were worried about public speaking. They were really, really intelligent folks, but they just were, they didn't care to stand up and and talk in front of people. And it didn't bother me. So this is kind of what I think I was born to do. It's what I love to do. It's what I've been doing for 35 years. Well, you're lucky that it didn't, because like when I started out being a lawyer, I stuttered for the first six months of being a car. Like even saying my name, I was so nervous and so insecure. And I remember saying to one of my friends, I'm like, did you start study? Did you study when you first went to court? He's like, yeah, but how long did that last? He's like, a week. Right. I'm like, fuck. I'm three months into this. I'm having trouble putting words together still. So it didn't come naturally for me. And yeah. and I really think that um, you know, standing up and presenting is a skill and you know, one that to be developed, not just from trying, but also from you know, mastering like really the science and technique of connection in front of a small group. And you know, I've been working on figuring out how to teach this and been coaching people for a while and made a lot of progress on it. So for, you know, in case anybody's just an unnatural like me, I can help those people. Now, the naturals, I think I can make better because I've never you're the best the, way. I didn't think I'd be better. You're the best in the business at it. You really are. Well, you see my coaching program one day because, like, I may be running it. I mean, doing it at Trial Lawyers University in New York City. So there's going to be, like, 10 people that would just be doing the boot camp for four days. Right. Because that is going to be exciting to watch the transformation of those people. But let me ask you this, Dino. Where, you're from West Virginia. You grew up in what? Tell us a little bit about your background growing up so we get a better idea of who you are. So you're right. I am from West Virginia. I grew up here. I've lived here most of my life. I lived in Ohio when I went to law school and, and worked at a law firm up in Cleveland for about a year. And then other than that, I've been in West Virginia my entire life. As far as my family growing up, I don't have any any story where I had to walk uh, in the snow uphill backwards both ways to school, that kind of thing. I had great parents who who loved us and who took care of us and who educated us and gave us great advice. Frankly, I'm a product of of two wonderful parents. They're gone now, they've left us, but uh, I'm the product of two great parents. And, you know, they they made sure we got a good education and good work ethic. I've been working, doing something since I was 14 years old. I'm going to be 60 next week, so a long time. But my grandfather used to say that work is a blessing, and it absolutely is. I, I don't know what I would do if I wasn't working. John Romano, as you you know, John and I are very close friends. And I asked John one time, I said, when are you going to hang it up? And he said, absolutely never. And he asked me the same thing. And I said, I'm afraid I'm going to be right there beside you because I don't know what I would do if I wasn't working. And as I said earlier, this is a, a passion of mine. And so I think that I'll be doing this for a long, long time. But I grew up in West Virginia. I went to law school in Ohio and at Colum- in Columbus at Capitol Law School. My wife was a graduate of Ohio State. And we have an office in Columbus right now, as you know. Travis Moeller and my son, Nathan Colombo, are, are both lawyers there in our Columbus office. And uh, I get to Columbus frequently. I'm there probably once a week, once every other week. So we are licensed both in West Virginia and Ohio. We cover the entirety of both states. And so we travel around and, and we're very active in the practice of law in both states. All right. So did you have any brothers and sisters? Did you play sports growing up? Yeah, I have a brother. He's also a lawyer. He went to Capitol Law School. He's a couple years behind me. He's a lawyer for Duke Energy down in Charlotte, North Carolina. He works for um, he works in their renewable energy, deals with uh, solar energy and windmills. I have two children. One I mentioned a minute ago, Nathan. Nathan's a lawyer, works in our Columbus office. He's been out of school probably four years now. I have a daughter. Her name's Caroline. She's a commercial airline pilot, believe it or not. And wow. yeah, so she uh, she works for a private company. She flies a f- private jet. That company's out of North Carolina, and she's all over the all over the country every day. And very proud of her. Yeah. She's twenty eight, and Nathan is thirty one. 
So, yeah. I'm, wow. And I've been married to my wife, Dawn, for 34 years. All right. Yeah. That's a good, that's a good solid beginning. And, and, well, and here, here's the other piece that people, people have asked me, and I think I gave an interview one time to uh, the National Trial Lawyers. They said, what do people not know about you? Because I'm an advertising lawyer. I'm a, kind of an open book to, to people. A lot of people know who I am in our local community here. I said, what people wouldn't know about me is that I am also the owner of a, of a wine import business. I have two partners. They're also lawyers. We import red wine and, and white wine, but primarily red wine from Italy and throughout Italy as well as Sicily. And we've been doing that about 10 or 12 years now. And it's been a wonderful hobby for us. It's been a wonderful uh, something to do other than uh, practice law. We like to drink red wine. And, and our saying is, if we can't sell it, we'll drink it because we only, we only uh, import wine that we genuinely like and want our friends and family to have. So it's been a great little uh, a side hustle for us and we've really enjoyed it. Nice. Well, you said you talked about being an advertising lawyer. How long have you been advertising for? And how that Probably about started? 20 years now. We have been a, a major advertiser in both West Virginia uh, and probably in the last six years, seven years in Columbus. So we're probably the number one advertising lawyer in our area here in West Virginia. And I think we're either number one or number two in Columbus. And, and it's been a, really been a good thing for us. A lot of people don't like to advertise. They don't want their name on a billboard or their face on a billboard or TV or whatever. It doesn't bother me. As I said, I'm, I'm comfortable kind of being in the public, but it has allowed us to be really, uh, we are direct-to-consumer advertisers. I mean, we accept referrals. We get referrals from, from people because our kind of niche in our practice is we handle primarily truck accident cases. That's what we do. And that's throughout West Virginia and Ohio and really around the country. So we do accept referrals and, and we like working with other lawyers and learning from them as well. But it has given us a great deal of independence to have clients contact us directly. I don't know how many calls we've gotten today. I mean, we get lots and lots of calls every day just from clients contacting us. And about it's Sometimes it's about truck accidents. Sometimes it's about a variety of other torts or injuries, malpractice, dog bite, whatever it might be. Maybe like a, an estate probate question or a criminal question. Probably like, let me give you this referral. Right here, I had it today. I do it, but I got the guy for you. Yeah, I had it today. I had a client, a former client of ours. We represented a huge truck accident case, got a gigantic result for her. And she had a, a will issue and a, a question about a will and a and a estate question. So she was supposed to come in today at three o'clock, but she had to reschedule. So anyway. Right. All right. So, so let's talk about being a trial lawyer and, uh, what would you say your top qualities that you possess to make you the trial lawyer you are, you know, to make you a winning trial lawyer? Because yeah. being a losing trial lawyer sucks. It does suck. But let me tell you this. Being a losing trial lawyer, I think you learn more losing than you do winning. Okay? Well, well, Nobody that, likes that goes to without saying Because, you know, if you don't sleep for a month after you lose a case and you replay it over and over and over in your mind – Everything you could do differently yeah, but, that you're going to learn from it. But your next trial, you'll do a better job. But anyway, what I would say is this. I would say probably my best quality, if, if you hate to talk about yourself and it's the only reason. Well, let's just say, let's, let's talk about you. What three qualities would you say are necessary to have at a high level, yeah. quality or character traits to, for somebody to be a champion or winning traveler? Forget about Dino. Yeah. I would, Other people. I would say the first thing, and this is going to, you're going to think I'm, I'm crazy for saying this. You have to be willing to learn, okay? And here's, let me tell you what I, what I mean by that. I had a partner. His name was Rich Stewart, and I love Rich, and we're still good friends. And he taught me to be the lawyer that I am. I mean, he was a wonderful guy, and 
he retired probably 10 years ago and, and I bought him out of the practice and, and I, I love him. And he's probably still to this day, one of the best lawyers I've ever dealt with. It was hard to tell rich things. He wouldn't want to listen to others to tell him how to take a deposition, how to try a case. I think one of the most important things that any trial lawyer can, can do or trait they need to have is the willingness to learn, the willingness to learn from other people. It might be a more experienced lawyer, an older lawyer, or it might be a young guy, all right? I mean, Travis Moeller, I think you know Travis from my office. Travis one of the smartest guys I know. We debate, he and Nathan and I, we debate everything together. And we, we take each other's advice. Sometimes I tell him he's crazy. Sometimes he tells me I'm crazy. And we go back and forth. But we debate these things. We debate how we're going to take this deposition. We debate how we're going to pick this jury and, and question this witness and all the different motions we're going to file. And I have to be, I'm going to be 60 years old next week. I need to be willing to learn from a 30-year-old, okay? And there's a lot of lawyers out there who are my age or, or around my age that think, look, I've done it all. I've tried all these cases. I'm good. I got it. Well, let me tell you what, that's bullshit because you don't have it because there's a lot of other really good thoughts and opinions that you might be able to improve your case or improve your skills. So what I would say is that you have to have the ability and willingness to learn. That's huge. And right now, and Dan, you're a product of it right now, you are teaching people, all right? Canish is teaching people. Mitnick is teaching people. Lanier is teaching people. John Romano, me, Satch Oliver, Joe Freed. We're all coming to these things. We're teaching others and we are being taught, right? We are being taught. You're talking about some of the, the premier lawyers in the country, excluding me, because I don't put them, myself in that category. Those are some of the premier lawyers in the country. They are still learning today how to better their craft. And that is huge. It's extraordinarily important for people to do. Because let me tell you, they call it the practice of law for a reason, okay? Because it is the practice. That's what I think. And I would agree with you. I consider it kind of having like the beginner's mindset, always being curious, like, why? Why'd you do that? That's why I love doing my case analysis program. We're going to do yours, I think, in uh, September 5th on a recent trucking verdict. But it's like somebody to break down a trial and explain to you all their decisions they made from how they structured their opening to questions, how they frame their questions in voir dire to how they did their money ask and all that stuff. Every day, it's just like, I get so many insights from different lawyers and it's just so exciting because that's a great thing about being a trial lawyer is like, you get to keep learning. It doesn't get boring and it's always changing. The thing is in our practice of law and on the plaintiff side of this, all of these fantastic lawyers are willing to share their secrets. It's really an amazing thing, right? All of these fantastic lawyers are willing to tell you how they got to this big verdict, what mistakes they made, what they did right, what they did wrong. That's almost unheard of. I, I know, I'm just saying like, absolutely. Like I tell you, everybody, you know, it's like, and people are like, wow, verdicts are so big these days. I wonder how that's happening. Well, I think a lot of that has to do with that so many plaintiff's lawyers were really, you know, sitting there and studying every day. And because the pandemic took away so much from us, our connections with other human beings, I think it caused so many people to start opening up and sharing more and realizing that by sharing, they are actually getting more because, you know, the benefit of changing other people's lives, of actually experiencing that and the wanting, to, you know, the desire to connect 
Because when, you know, like COVID, I was all by myself in my apartment in LA, by myself for literally months. I would go out and walk the streets, but they were kind of, you know, especially in the beginning, were kind of vacant, go out and try to get some carry out food, but just to be around other people. And so I think COVID really caused people, the great travelers who were all by themselves to actually open up and share more. And when somebody started opening up and sharing, they saw other people do that. Like, I got to share too, or I'm going to be a fraud bullshit if I'm just throwing shit out there to get business and not really trying to teach people. So between that and with the access to information these days, and frankly, you know, not to, but like programs like my, my boot camp where I teach connection and because connection when all those people aren't comfortable, like me, stuttered forever. And, you know, without a coach, like, what's appropriate eye contact? Oh, if you stare too much, it's weird. Well, that's not helping me any. That's not teaching me a skill. Right. With the repetition or where do my hands go? You know, I see people tell people, if you're nervous, just touch your fingertips together. I'm like, yeah, you're standing in front of people like this. You look like a weirdo. Yeah. Who stands like this? Weirdos. And you can't connect if you're nervous. So you got to train enough that you get calm. Right. That you relax. And so I tell people the only thing stopping you from being a great trial lawyer, a champion trial lawyer, is you. Because the path is there. You have to, you have to walk it. Nobody's going to carry your ass there. But if you want it, it's all there. And, it's, and so if you don't become a great trial lawyer, it's because you chose not to. It's not because it was anything stopping you, but you chose not to. And you should live with that. Having a balanced life or being comfortable and, you know, all that. Free, that's important. That, that's your life. I don't know too many trial lawyers that have these balanced lives because it doesn't really work. Because when you're in trial, there is nothing else except a trial. But you've got to be so. able to set your ego aside. I don't care how successful you are. You have to be able to set your ego aside and learn and listen to others. You know, John Romano and I were talking about, we wanted to have a, do a seminar one time where we talked about cases we lost, right? Why'd you lose this case? No, everybody, you go to these seminars, everybody wants to talk about this multi-million dollar verdict and we did this and we kicked this guy's ass and that guy's ass and blah, blah, blah. How about the cases that you lost? Because if all you're doing is winning cases, then you're not trying enough cases, okay? And the reality- well, You're not trying hard cases. Well, you're not you trying know. hard cases, that's right. And so, you know, but I think as lawyers, no matter how successful we are, we have to have the ability to set our ego aside and to genuinely want to learn. I mean, because I genuinely want to learn. The truth of the matter is I've tried 80 to 100 cases, right? I've tried a lot of cases. I have a pretty good idea what's going on, but I don't know at all. And let me tell you, earlier today, I'm debating with Travis and Nathan about, because I'm getting ready to try a case here in a couple of weeks, about whether or not we introduce the medical bills or whether that's going to be too low of an anchor. And there's a lot of pros and cons on that because it's a couple hundred thousand dollars in medical bills and we don't know that I don't go into all the details, but I want to know what they think, Right. You know, those guys don't have nearly the experience that I do, but they're smart guys. I mean, they know what's up. And so they have great, great thoughts and opinions about how the, the pros and cons of that. And at the end of the conversation, we decided not to introduce the bills. But I need to have that back and forth. There's a really good lawyer here in West Virginia. I won't name his name. One of the smartest guys I know. He was a defense lawyer, but he would never ask anybody. Any questions? He didn't focus group cases. He didn't have associates he bounced things off of or paralegals or anything. He thought he knew. And sometimes he did, but sometimes he didn't. And the sometimes he didn't turned out to be big disasters for him because he would never stop and ask and never stop and learn. So, well, if he was a defense lawyer, that's good. Well, yeah. <laughs> He's giving that money away. I mean, every big verdict, let's just be honest. I've never seen a big verdict that wasn't at least 50 to 60% the responsibility of the defense lawyer. I, never seen I agree 100% with you. Because, 
I agree. It's only their stupid behavior that pisses people off when people are pissed. Now we're talking money. Right. And, so. and I know we're going to talk about things, you know, about different cases and this kind of thing. But w- what I keep seeing, and, and Dan, what you just said is exactly 100% accurate. These big verdicts are driven by just terrible mistakes that people make on the defense side. They say things that they can't prove. They make representations that they can't back up. They make themselves look foolish. Their demeanor is crappy. Their statements to the jury are wrong. And they don't seem to care. And you know why? Because nobody has trained them. Nobody taught them. And that's the difference. When I started practicing law, I was, I was a med mal defense lawyer for maybe 15 years. Probably half of my career or more was a med mal defense lawyer. But I worked for a firm where they trained you. We learned the medicine. We tried the cases. We had two or three lawyers on every case who actually participated. One year, I tried 11 cases in one year. In one year, big malpractice cases. We tried a ton of cases, all right? That's a lot of trials for a med mail. You're not kidding, all right? But the point, though, is we had good senior lawyers who taught you, who taught you how to behave in front of a jury, taught you how to behave in front of a judge, in front of a client. So you make yourself look foolish and make representations you couldn't back up. I wouldn't be where I am without that training. We just tried a case, and, you know, that you referenced, we got a uh, just over $7 million verdict on. Travis Moeller was a primary lawyer on that. I was kind of the coach in the whole thing. And Travis did just a fantastic job in it in preparation. And he and my son, Nathan, just knocked it out of the park. But, well, what the hell do we got you on this for? Where's Travis? Right, Travis needs to be on. We're going to have Travis and Nathan on. All right, all right. But the, but the point is, though, that defense lawyer, the mistakes that were made on that case are unforgivable. Unforgivable. Anyway. No, they're forgivable with money. What are you talking yeah. about? Yeah. The verdict forgives it. I forgives yeah. everything with money. Come on, do you know what? We are in the money justice business. You see, that's what it says on the back of the TLU shirts. I understand. Money right. justice. Right. The, the, we're on the money justice tour. So just, just, so you, just so you can fire it up. See that? Money justice. There it is, baby. That's right. Man. That's all we're looking for is money. Not, we're, not, we're not here for sorries. We're not here for whatever, just for money. But let me ask you this. So willingness to learn, the beginner's mindset. That's number one. Give me the second quality, not of yours, but you would say great trial lawyers. I'll give you two, and they're kind of combined. One is pre- preparation, and I'm sure everybody who's, everybody knows that, but preparation. But the other thing is practice. I mean, it's actually the practice. To stand in front of a mirror and do opening statement. To stand in, okay. to stand in your office with the door open or closed and go through your voir dire, okay? In the case I'm getting ready to try here on July 19th, this is kind of a, this is a county where we've already picked the jury. We picked the jury last week believe it or not, for a trial that's not going to take place until July 19th. Screwed up situation, but that's the way this county does it. All right? All right, fine. I've been there. I've been to those stupid counties in Michigan. Yeah, all right. So we picked it. So the two or three days before jury selection, I'm in my office with the door closed, going through my voir dire, standing up on my feet, walking around as if I would be questioning the jury questioning where my feet are, where my hands are, the tone of my voice, what's going to happen if they say something back to me that I don't expect. So I am practicing that. And then as we approach the trial, I'll be practicing that opening statement. And sometimes we even videotape ourselves, and I'll probably do that here. And I'll watch the video. Here's the thing. On examination of witnesses, I read it in a deposition. I've taken tons of depositions, obviously. After a witness says an answer, I say, all right, all right. So every, every time I, I don't even know it. 
I'd never even heard of it. What are you saying that for? You're killing it. Right. But, Those verbal pauses. But, a guy, your senior status, you're still doing that. Bull- Man, right. you need some coaching. No way I got it. somebody to help you. <laughs> I'll help you break those bad habits. Don't you worry. I broke broke them myself by watching and reading what I was doing is what I'm saying. When I was, I was going, all right, all right, all right. But the point though is it is the practice. It is the videotaping of watching yourself. I know people don't like to, to watch themselves on TV. Frankly, I'm on TV so much that I'm used to it. But the point is, so I'm watching myself on TV, on the video and seeing how my mannerisms are how my tone of voice is, how my eye contact is, because all of that's incredibly important. And the more prepared you are, the more confident you will be in your presentation, okay? So the more, the more you know the facts, the more you know where you want to take a witness and how to get that witness to where you want to be, the more confident you will be in that examination. Very simple. I absolutely agree, and I am going to recommend a couple things. One is that you never practice in the mirror again because some weirdo's talking to you, disrupting your connection, and you can't make eye contact with your own eyes. And so for people that do my training, I send them, I call them juror boards, which are you know two by three boards with people's faces, just headshots on it to line them up like on easels. And then put a, you know, and, and I would strongly suggest that you record everything you do from your voir dire's. And then if you just have one person like Nathan or sit there and they give mock answers as you're staring at the board, and so that way you practice the patterns. I mean, you know, obviously once you get your voir dire structured in the sequence that you want them, how you want to frame the questions, that I think doing a live focus group is very important right. because it gets the feedback and, you know, the patterns of that conversation and recording yourself, you can see your own pacing, you know, your own hand movement, you know, because these kinds of things. Cause so like when you're talking to one juror, like I see so many like, so many prestigious lawyer, you know, lawyers that are great lawyers, when they're talking to a jury, they always stand like this with their hands bouncing like this, which, which is like insane to me because I'm trying to connect here. So if I'm trying to connect here, why would I not keep my hand a couple inches below my chin and move it with the rhythm of my voice between your face and my face? That's going to connect us, not blah, blah, blah with these things distracting you in your lower peripherals. But all these little things matter. They Ooh. all add up. This thing we call connection. And if you don't practice it and you don't watch yourself do it, you don't even know you're doing it. Oh, yeah. No, I know. It's like. And then so many times people are training with me and they're like, oh, I'm much better in the courtroom. I'm like, I'm sure you are when there's all this pressure and people yelling at you like judges and prosecutors. I mean, defense lawyers, I'm sure you're much better there right? right. than you are here where there's nothing on the line yeah. at all. But, but let's just, you know, yeah. we're just working on this right here. You're right. So those are your qualities of preparation, practice, and learning. That's the great thing. See, this is the toughest thing about like becoming a great trial. Well, the difficult things about becoming a great trial lawyer is, what do you do? To, because if I could ask 10 lawyers, 10 very successful lawyers, great trials, what do you think the top qualities are? I'll get 10 different answers by a long shot. Then, and because there's no set form, you know, it's like you have to try to like determine what are these skills and then practice, you know, isolate, identify, isolate, and practice those skills. But speaking of skills, as a difference, as opposed to character traits, what skills, do you, and by skill, I mean something like, that you can practice, you can develop, you get better at every day. So what skills would you say are the skills of great trial lawyers? I think the first thing is your, your tone of voice. I think the way in which you deliver the message. If you deliver the message deliberately with the right pauses, with the right stopping points, with, with the change in tone as, as the facts change, as you're telling a story. 
So I try to tell people, think about it like if you're reading a story to your son or your daughter when they were little. You know, you want to emphasize certain facts. You want to downplay other facts. Some things are just filler. So I think the tone of voice, I think the, I tried a lot of cases with lawyers who basically read it off a piece of paper when they're giving opening statement, right? I mean, they, they read it. You tried a case with people that did that? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Where, people, where they're, they're so monotone, they, 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 whatever's on the paper, they're reading it or they're summarizing, no matter what the facts might be, they've already put it down, so they're going to go with what's on the paper, all right? You've got to live it because here's what I think, and I really do think this after 80-plus trials. Jurors are never going to really understand all the facts of your case. They're never going to understand them all, but they know who's telling the truth. They know who's giving them bullshit and who's not, okay? And so they're never going to understand the nitty-gritty details of your case. It's taken you two or three years to develop the case and get the facts and, and all the evidence kind of boiled down to your case. And you might have two days or two weeks or sometimes longer, depends on who, what kind of case you're trying. But the jurors are never understanding all of those details. They got their own life going on. They're tired. They're, they're worried about dinner. Who's, who's, do I have food for the kids for dinner? Who's picking the kids up off the bus? Their mind wanders through this thing, but they know who's telling the truth. And credibility comes with truly believing in your case. So let me give you an example. If you're going to ask for a number in closing argument, whether it's $5, $5 million, or $50 million, you by God better believe in that number, okay? And you better build that damage model, and you as the lawyer delivering that message better believe in that number, all right? Because if you don't believe in that number and believe in your case and believe in your client, I don't care what you say, you're in trouble because a jury can feel it. They can see it. They can feel it. And you're in trouble. So Dino, the first point is voice control, controlling the pace, controlling the pausing. That's critical. And really your articulation is very important too, because people that don't breathe enough and don't pause enough, sometimes their words kind of mumble together and then you lose your jury because now they start focusing on what the hell did that person just say or why doesn't that person care enough about me to clearly articulate what they want to say? So voice control. Right. What's the next, what's the next one you think is real important? And before we move from voice control, the voice control also builds your credibility, okay? It builds your authenticity as well because you want this jurors to hang on your words. What's he going to say next? What, why is he saying this? Where is he going with this? You want them engaged. You want to be telling the story. I don't know if you've ever heard John Romano. John and I have tried uh, several cases together. Man, you talk about a storyteller. I mean, he's fantastic. And so you want to be hanging on to every, every word. And so it builds your credibility and your authenticity. Your authenticity builds your credibility is what I would say. The other thing is this, or two other things I would say is this. You need to be able to control your reaction and your emotions to what's going on during trial and in dealing with the defense lawyers. So let me give you an example. If you go to the bench and you feel like the judge is screwing you and you feel very strongly about a point and the judge is you know, sustaining the objection or, or excluding a, a key piece of evidence, you've got to maintain your composure. You're a professional, right? Because believe me, that jury is watching you. They're watching you if you're pissed off and shaking your head and, and rolling your eyes and and frankly, they pick up if you're giving disrespect to the court too, all right? 
And you got to watch when you are walking out to the to the parking lot to put money in the meter or going to the bathroom or going to lunch. That jury is watching every move you make, your mannerisms, your your how you're speaking to your client or your legal assistant. Are you know, many legal assistants are females. Some of them are males, but but oftentimes they're females. And so if you are disrespectful to a a legal assistant, male or female, but particularly female, I'll just be blunt about it. And a jury catches, juror catches that, your ass is in trouble. And it should be, right? Because let me tell you what, my paralegals are a key part of my success. And I introduce them in during voir dire. And I tell these juries, that's Linda and that's Teresa. And I wouldn't be successful without them. And not only is that true, but I want the jury to know that, okay? And so controlling your emotions, not only with the court, but with defense counsel. Let's face it, some defense lawyers are good people, good lawyers, treat you respectfully. Others are complete assholes. We see it, we deal with it. But if you get, if you let your emotions control you, if you let your emotions control you with, in front of the jury or with the defense lawyer, believe me, you're going to screw it up. I promise you. You will do things and you will say things and you will take positions that when you look back on it, you will say, what was I thinking? I promise you. That's, you know, that's sound advice. Absolutely. And um, as when I train people, you know, because I train them on state control, right? Controlling, like having a warm place. Good morning, everybody. Or like having, like, when you ask a question, your face has to be like the inquisitive face. Because if you ask a question with a neutral face, well, the jury doesn't really know it's a question until they process it. Like, oh, that's a question. Whereas like, like, does that make sense to everybody? Or, or can we all do this? Now they know by reading your face, it's a question. Then they hear the words that are congruent with the question. Now they're much more likely to participate in answering the question because everything's lined up. But if you're not practicing- You're exactly right. You know, because this, this is a likability contest as much as anything else. It just is. I know. If they like me and don't like you, I'm a leg up. You're more the leg up. You're like a whole torso up. I right. mean, but it takes practice to control the face. To you know, Correct. it takes practice to shift it from neutral to inquisitive to concern to you know warm to ha- you know. I mean, these are all different emotions, and we have to, be able to show every emotion. And people have to be able to read it. And it has to be congruent with what we're saying. So, the other thing a, a lawyer has to be able to do is this: they got to be able to address their weaknesses in front of the jury. Address the weaknesses. If, if there's a weakness in your case, you're representing a plaintiff in a car accident case, and there's a big comparative fault argument against you, you know, and it's got some merit to it, there's some legitimacy to it. It's better just, and frankly, you build, again, it's all about credibility. You build your credibility by, look, say, look, let's address this up front. They're going to make a claim that Mr. Smith was driving too fast. The truth is he probably was driving a little too fast, but here's why that doesn't matter. Okay. As opposed to acting like driving 80 and a 65 is no big deal, address it. It shows that you have confidence in your case. It shows that you're going to deal with the issue right up front and you diffuse it before the others get there. Because if you wait, they're going to screw you with it. If you hide it, if you don't raise it, it makes it look like you're hiding it. So bring up your bad facts, point them out to them, turn those bad, bad facts into good facts. Turn your negatives into positive. Almost. Almost every negative, if you think about it long enough and debate it long enough, maybe focus group things, talk to your colleagues, talk to your partners, you can come up with a positive spin on bad facts. But you've got to get your butt to work and start thinking about it. Well, speaking of getting our butts to work, we're going to get our butts to work in New York City, September 20th to 23rd in Times Square. And we have, I call it 
Murderer's Row from the 1920 New York Yankees with Gehrig and Babe Ruth. And because, and like, especially for right in New York City between Ben Morelli, Ben Rabinovitz, Evan Torgan, Judy Livingston, Jeff Couric. I mean, we got the, that's just from the city, but then from, you know, Mangaluzzi from Philly, from the East Coast. And, and then, you know, like the Panish is coming out in Paris. I mean, I'm so excited about what's going to happen in New York. And, and I'm excited that you're going to be teaching there too. So tell us, what are you going to be teaching? Yeah, we're going to be talking about innovative and creative advocacy. So what I'm going to talk to the folks about is this, about, it's going to be kind of a broad talk about very specific but very unique ways about how to address issues with the jury, and most importantly, how to examine witnesses. So we go to these seminars. We learn. I've probably taken over a thousand depositions in my life, maybe more than that. All right. And so there are things I've done very well. There's things I've done very poorly. I have learned from people like Panish, Mitnick, Romano, Freed, Oliver, Morgan Adams. And we've taken all of their ideas and I've made them, I've worked on them my own. I put my own thoughts, my own creativity in them. So we're going to talk about true false questions, for example. We're going to talk about road mapping, for example. Lanier. Lanier is, and I know you've been to the Lanier conference many times, as have I. You know, we're doing the road mapping. I'm going to show people how to do that road mapping on not the pharmaceutical four or five billion dollar case, but on the truck accident case, right? We're going to show how to use true false questions that really make a difference, right? True false questions that are really demonstrative aids. That's really what we're doing. We're setting up the rules of the road as demonstrative aids, and I'm going to show people how to score huge points that will carry you through the case, carry you through mediation, carry you through the trial so that you can say, what do you, when you go to the defense lawyer, what are you going to do about this? All right. Where you have the true false question and the key witnesses holding it up like it's a, uh, like a mugshot. Okay. I mean, it is fantastic stuff. And I wish I could tell you that I came up with it all on my own head. I did not. I stole a little bit from Panish, a little bit from Mitnick, a little bit from here, a little bit from there, and I made it my own. And I made it based on things that work for me and things that don't. I don't try $5 billion pharmaceutical cases. Yet. I try, yet. You're only 60, dude. Don't, don't, just be patient. We're, and plus, we've only become friends recently, so you don't know how great your future is going to be. I tried 20 and $25 million automobile and trucking cases, right? That's what I do. Well, hold on, hold on, hold on a second, Dino. Then how the, pardon my language, but how the F did you get a seven and a half million dollar verdict? You messed up a $20 million case that badly? I, I told you I was Travis. <laughs> <laughs> like Travis did that one. Okay, it was a blurting. Okay, right. It was Travis's fault. Uh, okay. Well, he, he got seven million on a $1 million case is what he ended up with. But anyway, but the reality is this. So we are going to be talking about creative and innovative advocacy. Not, not the run-of-the-mill stuff that you see in other, in other presentations. I'm going to show the actual video clips. I'm going to show you the true-false. I'm going to show you the roadmaps. Those roadmaps are gigantic. They're absolutely unbelievable. And I can't thank Mark Lanier enough for teaching it to me. The guy's unbelievable. The guy's unbelievable. But so I've taken his roadmapping. I've taken the true-false questions. I've taken the demonstrative aids. I've taken the three-camera depositions right? And we're making it so that it fits my personality. So it fits my cases. Now, this needs to fit 
the, the audience's cases. You're not me. I'm not you. I'm not Lanier. I'm not Panish. I'm not those guys. I'm Dino Colombo. And so, but I want to give you guys ideas about how to make it work in your everyday practice. We have coined the phrase depositions are trial. All right. And they absolutely are. We are no longer taking discovery depositions as in the traditional sense where we want to know, where we, we want to take the, the background. That's bullshit. I, I don't care about that. I'm getting right to the point. I know what I want to ask. We're setting the rules of the road. We're going to set up the rules. And we're going to knock them down with each and every one of these witnesses so that they have nowhere to go. And that's what we're going to do. And that's what that talk is going to be about at TLU in, in New York City. It's fantastic. I'm, I, I'm, already, I'm already excited if about it. Really, if I may say so myself, and I am completely unbiased and objective, but my presentation is amazing and you don't want to miss it. That's right. That's what I want to say. I'm talking objectively. I got to be blunt about it. because. So, but, you know, you might consider, you know, I have a separate idea, but we'll talk about it later, is uh, doing an on-your-feet workshop on direct examination using roadmaps. So people have their own witness. Okay, how do I do a roadmap for this doctor? And then how do I incorporate it with it? Because until people get on their, off their asses, on their feet, get a marker out and butcher paper or, you know, a uh, Elmo that they're doing it with, they're never going to do it in trial because it's too far out of their comfort zones and they haven't practiced it. They get to happen. And it's the practice. Okay. Because what we've done is when we go, when we go into deposition and we're going to use a roadmap, we've already done the roadmap. I already know what it's going to say for the most part, right? So I have a roadmap already filled in that I set to the side that I am using as my template. And then I am taking the witness through the entire roadmap as I understand it to be. Now, sometimes you get a curve, no question about it. You gotta be able to, to work with that curveball. But 98% of the time, it's what we expect it to be. I tell the story and people think I'm kidding. I had a defense lawyer object to the roadmap and here was the objection because they were so flustered by it. They said, objection, it's persuasive. That's what they said. Those, those are the kind of objections that you get the transcript, you highlight it, and you put it on every social media platform you can because that's just so it shows how far out of their heads they are. Like, objection, it's clarifying the point too well. Right. They've not seen it. And if I would have been a defense lawyer back at, and, and had seen some of this, I wouldn't know what the hell to do either. I mean, I'm, we're, we're having witnesses, you know, the, the 30B witnesses check off the true false, hold it up there like a mugshot. We've got all kinds of ideas about how to prove the point. Because what Lanier has taught me, and I hope to teach others, is that, and you've heard this term, a picture is, is worth a thousand words. And that's all, absolutely true. And if you look in our society today, YouTube has so how many visitors? you know, LinkedIn, Facebook, they're all, everybody wants TikTok. They're all based on video. They don't want people just to, to say words to them, to read to them. They want to see demonstrative evidence because they will learn so much more and remember so much more if they see it. And I want them to see the rules. And then I want them to see how the defendant violated those rules. That's far better than me telling them the rules. Yes, we agree. Well, let's move on from there and talk about this recent verdict. Because yes. yeah. you recently, or Travis got, uh, you know, the seven and a half million dollar verdict. So tell us about that case. Give us the, yeah. give us the, I call it the condensed preview. What's the case yeah. about? Who got hurt? What happened to them? Yeah. Just so we can understand it. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. So this was a case in, in Springfield, Ohio. Travis Moeller, my associate, my son Nathan Colombo, they were both on the case. I was brought in as and, and I as I was telling somebody, I was the I was the manager. I was like the manager of a ball club. So those two guys tried the case primarily, Travis, and I coached them through it. It was um, a case involving a truck accident, a flatbed truck that had backed across a two-lane road uh, very, very early in the morning while it was still dark. Our client was on his way to work, uh, going in the opposite direction of this two-lane road. As the flatbed trailer was was backing across his lane of traffic, he didn't see it in time, slammed on his brakes, and basically there was an underride situation where he went underneath the flatbed trailer and was severely injured. Had a brain bleed that healed okay, but his primary injury was a severely fractured hip. And he had to have, had to have three surgeries to, to finally repair the hip. He ended up with a leg length discrepancy of about an inch, which is pretty significant. And, um, yeah. and he had to walk with a cane and was disabled. So the, the case was, was a case involving the fact that he had blocked, that the truck driver had blocked this, this uh, two lane road, didn't, had no warning, no, no flaggers, no traffic control devices, nothing. And he, the, the trucker and the, the steel company who hired the trucker blamed our client entirely said it was your fault you should have seen the truck we had reflective tape we had uh, the flashing lights going uh, on the side of the truck that you should have seen it in plenty of time and it was your fault you must have been distracted in some fashion and you should have seen it and gotten stopped so we tried the case for about a week and a half they had the defense had done a visibility study that was the the key piece of their evidence where they had an engineer uh, come in and they basically recreated the collision. Our client was driving a Ford F-150. They set up cameras in the F-150, got about the same type of lighting and did this drive-through video and said, you know, about 800 feet, you should have been able to see the truck and stop. I won't go into the details of, of their study and the mistakes that were made because there is now a motion for sanctions in addition to the $7,010,000 verdict. Uh, which was paid, by the way. So what happens is, yeah, I'll tell you that in a second. Aren't you greedy? You got paid and you won sanctions? I love it. Absolutely. And and we are very much deserving of the sanctions in this because of the uh, of what I would consider extremely inappropriate behavior by not only the expert witnesses, uh, but potentially the lawyers and the uh, and maybe the defendant himself. So at the end of the day, the jury found our client to have no fault in this. They assessed him no liability. They found that the defendant driver was not only negligent, but reckless. Uh, we only had $350,000 in, in medical bills. Did we waive them? No, we did not waive them in that case. We'll talk about that during case analysis. Yes, we did not waive it on that. And we ended up with a $7,010,000 verdict. And because there was a reckless, there was a finding that the, the defendant was reckless, Punitive damages was the next phase, which was going to be my part of the case. So I was going to be trying the punitive damage phase of the case. So what we did at the end of the day, the verdict came in around 630 in the evening. Uh, we approached the defense lawyers and we said, look, we're going to start punitive damages one o'clock the following day. We'll give you to 1030 in the morning the next day. If you pay the verdict, the seven million ten thousand dollars we'll forego and forego an appeal to pay the ten seven million ten thousand uh, we will forego the punitive damages. About 10.30 the next morning, they agreed to pay it. And in fact, we just got paid last week. Well, it sounds like there's going to be a party in New York City with Colombo Law. <laughs> <laughs> 
I'll never put somebody out of the guy that I'm like, oh, drinks and dinner are on you. I love it. So I want to be clear. Travis Moeller is the one who deserves the credit for this. He did a fantastic job in this case. My son Nathan did a fantastic job helping Travis. We all prepped together. We worked every night together. As I said, I was I was the uh, major league uh, manager in the back, and I was coming out of the bullpen to do the punitive damage phase, and then they agreed to pay the case. So that's how it went. We were happy with the result. The client was extraordinarily happy. Wonderful, wonderful man. He and his family were just fantastic people. And you hear this all the time, but it really was an honor to represent him. He got blamed for things he never did. It was such bullshit to begin with. He was victimized or they tried to victimize him, but we just wouldn't let it happen. And he prevailed and prevailed in a big, big way. Couldn't have been happier. I am looking forward to this program on September 5th, but just, you know, what would you say? Because I know every time we try cases, we learn stuff. So yeah. give us what your, like the biggest thing you learned from this case. The biggest thing I learned from that case is, is that you don't tell the jury something you cannot prove. Well, you knew that already, Dino. You didn't have to learn that there from watching some dumb defense lawyer do it and pull, yeah, you know, but, pull the shit. But really, but, but the point though is no one knows exactly how the evidence is going to come in, Right. I mean, you, you think you know, and you tell them an opening statement, and you damn well better be, be sure that it is what it is, right? When you tell them what the evidence is going to be, it, it better be what, what you say it is. But sometimes, and in this case for the defense lawyer, for a lot of reasons, it didn't go the way they planned. They didn't change anything. They just kept saying the same ridiculous things over and over and over. And Dan, what you said at the beginning of this podcast is true, that oftentimes, if not the 50 to 60% of the times, the big verdicts come from mistakes from opposing counsel. And that, that had a lot to do with this because they lost their credibility. And not only did they lose it, they kicked it down the road. They kicked it down the road. And then when they got up to it again, they kicked it a little further for absolutely no reason. The point is there are going to be weaknesses in everybody's case. Own up to them, address them, try to turn those weaknesses into strengths and tell the jury why they're not as bad as the, as the defense thinks they are. Be upfront with them. It builds your credibility. Cre this, these cases are all about credibility. I said, juries don't understand all the facts, but they know who's telling the truth. At the end of the day, Travis Moeller and Nathan Colombo were telling the truth. The defense lawyers didn't appear to be. And that was the difference in that case. All right, and here's my final question. Yes, sir. What was your... Other than the verdict being read and paid, yep. what was your highlight, favorite moment of the case? When you look back on this trial, you look at that moment, you live it in your mind, and you smile. Yeah, that's easy, actually, in this case. The key piece of evidence that got, I told you, was this uh, video Funny. of trying to recreate the accident. After some shenanigans that the defendants had pulled, the judge struck the video and told the jury not to, or told the jury to disregard the testimony on that whole issue. That was their whole case. While on the stand, this mechanical engineer who works for a very substantial company, SEA, began to cry on the witness stand. Cry. Wait. In, in front of the jury. Wait, but the engineer was a, a, a male? A male. A male engineer, because his credibility had been hurt so bad that he began to cry on the witness stand. You can't top that. I'm, I've been a lawyer 35 years, Dan. Tried a lot of cases, seen a lot of crazy stuff. Never saw that. This witness has to be sworn in a second time. 
like the first one didn't take. At a, at a, he got sworn in when he first took the stand, sworn in, went through about an hour's worth of testimony. An issue came up with this video. Jury was taken out of the, the jury, out of the courtroom, put in the jury room. We argued the, the issue. We prevailed. The, the video got struck. Jury was told to disregard the evidence. And the witness asked to be re-sworn in. He went ahead and swore him in. And the guy, judge says, would you raise your right hand? The guy so shook, he raised his left hand. Sat down, started crying. You know what? I can see why that'd be favorite moments. I can see it was why. wonderful. Well, it was, it was a great experience, and, and we're happy, obviously, with the result. And, um, yep. And a couple things are this before we wrap up here is so we're going to do this at September 5th, I think 1 p.m. in, in West Virginia, 10 a.m. in uh, California. And everybody else has to figure out in between what they're doing. And, and so I'll see you there, but I'll see you. Well, I see you in person next week at the AAJ in Philadelphia. I will not. I'm going to be on vacation next week. Oh, that's right. Well, that'll be better. Well, I'll be on vacation in Philadelphia with my trial lawyer friends. <laughs> okay. and, and then tell you know, everybody I said hello. I will. And New York City is going to be great. We got, like I said, the four lecture tracks, seven workshop tracks. It's going to be the most awesome trial lawyers event that's ever come to the Eastern Seaboard. I am certain of this. So hopefully. Well, you know, we had, we had a knockdown drag out out in Vegas. We had a great time. A lot of people. It was fantastic last year in October. No, that was great. And so we're going to replace that program this year with New York City and get a little East Coast love is what we call it. Well, Dino, go, great spending this time with you and getting to know you a little bit better and get some of your uh, your philosophies and views on trial lawyering. And, you know, for me, it's always it's like like I love these things because because you get a chance to meet people and get to know them. And then you see them, you have a different relationship because now it's like no more their story, who they are. And, and that's what life's about is friends, relationships, and stories and finding, no finding some money justice out there. So congratulations to Travis and who's that? Wait, Travis, your son, I know Travis Holder, your son is- Nathan, 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 Colombo. Nathan, Nathan Colombo. I know I've met him many times. I just, I, got, I bumped my head as a kid. So I, I work sometimes, I, got, I need a lot of uh, visual breach. Re- re- refreshers to get it all. But anyways, you have a great rest of your day and uh, I'll see you soon. Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you for having me. My pleasure. Join us September 20th to 23rd in New York City for TLU Live. We're going to have some of the greatest trial lawyers in the country coming from Brian Panish, Ben Morelli, Judy Livingston, Joe Freed, Zoe Littlepage, Rex Paris, and the list goes on and on. And not only will we have four lecture tracks, but we're gonna have seven workshop tracks where you can work on and hone a specific skill in a small group taught by a great trial lawyer. The website is tlunyc.com. Ready to train with the Titans and set records with your verdicts? Register for our live conferences and boot camps at triallawyersuniversity.com. Start getting your reps in before the big event by going to tluondemand.com to gain instant access to live lectures, case analysis, and skills training videos from the trial lawyer champions you love and respect, as well as pleadings, transcripts, PowerPoints, and notes for a roadmap to victory. Join the group that continues to get extraordinary results. Trial Lawyers University, produced and powered by LawPods.